Lauren Boebert is a United States congressional representative for the state of Colorado and a professing Christian. A few months ago on June 11th, while preaching to the men, women, and children of a family church camp uh, meeting in Colorado Springs, Lauren Boebert stated to the laughter and the applause of the attendees that Jesus didn't have enough AR-15s to keep his government from killing him. An AR-15, of course, is an assault rifle. And according to Lauren Boebert, if Jesus had had more of them, he wouldn't have been crucified. And the church was ecstatic about this. What should have happened is because this statement contains so many horrific errors, the church should have rebuked it as satanic, but they didn't. Now, I have no political agenda in drawing your attention to this, and if you suspect that I do, I hope that you'll take the time to get to know me a little bit more. The reason I'm drawing your attention to this, the reason for such a serious note right off the bat, is because one, it it illustrates the grievously skewed consequence of cloaking the Christian faith with an American flag. And it also illustrates the opposite mindset that we see play out time and time again in Scripture and in today's passage. This morning, we continue in our 12-week series through the book of Daniel by reading and reflecting on and, Lord willing, responding to Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles or scripture journals or devices. If you're just joining us this morning, here's a quick overview. The book of Daniel tells the story of four Israelite teenagers who among roughly 5,000 others are torn from their families and homes and they are deported to a faraway country to serve a pagan king. Uh, This story is replete with heartache and danger and darkness and yet at every turn in and through the danger and darkness, God is faithful to guard and to guide and to grant Daniel and his friends wisdom and understanding and heavenly poise. Before I read our passage, I'll pose you with a silent question that's going to be posed in our passage. When you perceive that danger is on the horizon for you, when you perceive that danger is on the horizon whether at work or in your neighborhood or in this country, what is your first response? Where do you first go and what do you first do? Do you, like Lauren Boebert, go first to your gun closet? This isn't a statement about the Second Amendment. Don't look into that. Don't look into that. Where do you go first? 
Do you first go to your safety deposit box or to a bunker out in the middle of nowhere? Where do you go and what do you do when danger is on the horizon? The way you answer that question will shine a spotlight, a spotlight onto whom or what you trust in the most. So I'd invite you to follow along as I read now what Daniel and his friends do when danger darkens their doorstep. Daniel chapter 2 verses 1 through 23. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupting words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the, the, the captain of the king's guard who, was, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
then, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? O oh God in heaven, you do give wisdom and understanding. And we ask you now, in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would grant us with wisdom and understanding that is rooted and that is emerging in this passage, Lord, would you reveal it to us? Would you convict and comfort? Would you conform us and send us out? Having had an exchange with the real and living God this morning and spreading out into all of Worcester to shine the light of Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray this in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Kind of an intense passage. According to verse 1, the events that are chronicled in this second chapter of Daniel, according to verse 1, they happen in the second year of the reign of of King Nebuchadnezzar, and yet the events we covered last week in chapter one happened in his third year. There are a couple explanations for this apparent time reversal. It is not a time reversal. These things happen in linear order. Chapter one precedes chapter two. First explanation is that the ancient Babylonians didn't count partial years of a king's reign. They rounded up and they rounded down. And secondly, in the first years of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, the preceding king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's father, was still alive, meaning the passing of the baton was still in motion during the events of chapter 1. After Nebuchadnezzar's father's death, which happened sometime in chapter 1, the clock on Nebuchadnezzar's reign was reset. And so we come into chapter 2, and we see Daniel and his friends, who have completed the three-year indoctrination program that was forced upon them last Sunday in chapter 1. And they've risen to the official position of wise men among the king's magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and the Chaldeans who were an elite group of priest scholars. In verse 2, we aren't told why Daniel and his friends are not present when King Nebuchadnezzar first summons his council of wise men. We're not told exactly why, but... 
it does play out precisely as God intends in order that God's greatness would be revealed to Nebuchadnezzar and his wise men and the entire kingdom of Babylon. And that's, of course, next week, Lord willing. As one commentator puts it, when tyrants suffer from bad dreams, God is at work. For the remainder of our time, let's consider this passage in three segments. Number one, the threat. Number two, the response. And number three, the deliverer. Number one, the threat. This is going to take the majority of our time, but let's dive in. In verse one, we're told that King Nebuchadnezzar is unsettled by a series of threatening dreams. Now, for ancient kings such as he... Dreams were a big deal. They were considered to be glimpses into the future. And when a dream was particularly unsettling, such as Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, ancient kings would take action in hopes of preventing the dream's undesirable outcome. Does that make sense? The problem for Nebuchadnezzar in our passage is that he doesn't know what to make of his dreams. So in verses 2 and 3, he summons his council of wise men to help him get to the bottom of it. Now, these wise men were the best of the best when it came to knowledge and sorcery and divination and astrology. If these wise men couldn't help Nebuchadnezzar, no one could. However... Nebuchadnezzar feels personally threatened by these dreams. And he doesn't want to come outright and tell his wise men what he is seeing in these dreams because if he does, it might embolden them to turn against him and bring about the undesirable outcome of the dream, whatever it is. And that's why we see Nebuchadnezzar and his wise men going back And fourth, in verses 4 through 11, as Nebuchadnezzar repeatedly demands from them what no Babylonian king had ever demanded. He demands not only that they interpret what his dreams meant, he demands that they reveal what his dreams were. He doesn't want to risk having a usurping of power. He's not going to show weakness You tell me what the dreams were and what they mean. By the way, you're wise guys. You should be able to do this anyway. It's an impossible task. And at first, the sheepish Chaldeans are like, okay, um, oh, king, we want you to live forever. Uh, That much is true. And, but you need to tell us the dream uh, so we can tell you what it means. And in verses 5 through 7, you can almost hear Nebuchadnezzar's fist tighten. And you can almost hear his fear turning into anger as he doubles down and says, I have spoken to you. If you do not reveal my dream and interpret it, I will tear your bodies and your homes to pieces. These wise men had no doubt watched Nebuchadnezzar do this in the past. 
They'd probably seen it with their own eyes. And now they are staring into the abyss of their own graves. And they stumble and they fumble time and time again. And Nebuchadnezzar accuses them of lying and stalling and conspiring against him in verses 8 through 11. Bad is getting worse. No one on earth can do what Nebuchadnezzar is demanding that his wise men do. And even their wise and powerful pantheon of gods are conveniently enough unconcerned with human affairs. And they call it unconcerned with human affairs. The rest of us call it unable to do anything about human affairs. In verse 12, Nebuchadnezzar's panicked rage reaches its peak and he sentences all the wise men of Babylon to death. Now pause with me for a moment and notice the lion-hearted Nebuchadnezzar and his preeminent wise men and their pantheon of elusive gods are all dropping like ants in a hailstorm. This is a perfect storm, if you will. A perfect storm to be stilled only by the God of heaven who happens to be greatly concerned with humans and our affairs. Perfect storms like these are perfect occasions for God to reveal his wisdom and his power. And it may at first sound unloving, but it actually is, I would argue, one of the most loving and good things we can do if for our wayward children, we pray that the Lord would usher them into a perfect storm. For our self-reliant bosses, usher them into the perfect storm. For our hard-hearted neighbors, for rebellious presidents and congressmen and women and, and so on and so forth. It is a wonderfully good and loving thing to pray that God would bring them into such a scenario that only God can bring them out of. In verse 13, after Nebuchadnezzar orders the execution of all his wise men, Daniel and his friends are seized by Arioch, the captain of the king's guard. This is the threat, point number one. There are a lot of threats going on in this part of the passage, but this is the big threat that we're looking at. Daniel and his friends have been seized, and they're going to die. Now, let me ask you again the question that I opened with. When you perceive that danger is on the horizon, whether at work, school, neighborhood, country, what's your first response? Let's look at Daniel and his friend's response. Number two, the response. In verses 14 through 16, with respectful collected prudence and concern, Daniel approaches Arioch in order to gain better understanding of the situation. He gains understanding 
And then he arranges a time to personally address the king. It had to have been terrifying to ask for more time from a king who had just refused to give more time to all the other wise men. And yet, somehow, with God silently coursing through the backdrop, Daniel gains approval from Nebuchadnezzar. He gains favor. and I can only pray for me personally and us as a church, as men and women of God. I can only pray that if we ever find ourselves in a situation even close to this, that we would respond the way Daniel does with courageous calm and heavenly poise. I mean, this, we're talking about an older teenager or young man here. With imminent death on the horizon, Daniel has the wherewithal to just simply gain a little bit of information and some necessary time. But here's what I want you to see with me. Where he goes and what he does, now that he has stayed his execution for just a moment, look with me where he goes and what he does. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his armory and grabbed his assault rifle and then he hunkered down in a secret bunker and said, come get me. <laughs> no. Then Daniel went to his safety deposit box and grabbed all of his valuables and then he made a mad dash over the border. Still no. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house. And he made the matter known to his friends. And he urged them to seek the mercy of God. In the face of imminent death, Daniel gathers his friends in his home. And together, they cry out to God for help. When situations beyond our control force us to our knees in desperate dependence on God, it sets the stage for our majestic and faithful God to do what cannot be done. Brother, sister, if your workplace is becoming increasingly hostile toward God's truth and God's people, what are you doing about it? How are you responding? If you're getting the sense that our nation is irrevocably tailspinning into a black hole of wickedness, what are you doing about it? How are you responding? asking the same question of myself. If your wayward children are gleefully skipping down the wide path of the woke world, what are you doing about it? How are you responding? This applies to everything. Brother, sister, if your marriage is crumbling beneath your feet, what are you doing in your not knowing what to do? Take note with me 
of Daniel's desperate response. It's passages like this that are easy just to read over. And he went and he, he prayed with his friends. No. When was the last time you summoned brothers and sisters from your community group on a Thursday night, not a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, or on a Friday night, extracurricular? When was the last time you summoned brothers and sisters to your home for the specific and undistracted purpose of petitioning God to do what you have no power to do? The Apostle James writes a scathing, sobering statement in James chapter 4, verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. When was the last time you prayed like the answer depended upon it? As Oregon pastor D. Duke writes, Almost everyone believes that prayer is important. But there is a remarkable difference between believing that prayer is important and believing it is essential. The mysterious truth that has been determined by our utterly, beautifully sovereign God is this. There are things that will not happen without prayer. I can't fully explain that. And if anyone ever tells you they can fully explain that, red flag. In God's sovereign wisdom, in his cosmos, he has determined that there are things that will not happen if you don't pray about it. That's how God in all his infinite wisdom has designed it and we see it again and again and again and again throughout scripture. What happened right before Jesus turned seven loaves of bread and a couple fish into an all-you-can-eat banquet for thousands of people? He prayed. What happened right before Philip was called out to the middle of the desert to preach the gospel to an Ethiopian stranger who was then converted and baptized and recognized as an Ethiopian church leader? What was Philip doing? He was praying. What happened right before a random earthquake rattled loose the chains of Paul and Silas who were being held captive in Philippi? They were praying. What does Jesus teach his disciples to do? Preach a sermon? Nope. Lead a small group? Nope. Write a Bible study? Nope. Systematic theology? Nope. Well, kind of, but nope. In this, for this. He teaches them to pray. To pray. Because again, there are things that will not happen Without prayer. Do we pray like the answer is dependent upon the prayer itself? We ought to. With all due reverence and respect and honor to our holy God, let your will be done. But according to my perspective, I'm going to pray this, Lord. Change his heart. 
put her between a rock and a hard place. Absolutely thwart the schemes of our, you know, the governing powers and rulers and put them in a perfect storm so that they feel like ants in the middle of a hailstorm that only you can calm. God has a knack for placing us in situations that force us downward in desperate dependence on him so as to showcase his unique ability to do what cannot be done to the praise of his glory. In our passage this morning, what happens right before verse 19 when the impossible mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is revealed to Daniel? He prays. He and his friends, they knuckle down in, their, in his living room or wherever it was and they cry out for the mercy of God to fall. As danger increases and as darkness permeates our world, how can we but respond the way Daniel and his friends do? See, it's one thing for me to tell you that I trust God. It's another thing for me to demonstrate it by entrusting my physical, mental, and spiritual well-being to God's providential wisdom and care. Do you trust God? Do you entrust him like that? Do you entrust him with your whole well-being? I often fail at this, and I often allow my prayerless and anxious heart to respond to threats on the horizon with counter-threats, right? I have so much to learn, and maybe you do too, from 1 Peter 2.23, where it is written of our Savior that when he, Jesus, was insulted, he didn't insult in return. And when he suffered, he did not respond with a counter threat. Instead, he entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly. Oh, Lord, forgive me and grow me and put people like Lauren Boebert in the perfect storm such that she doesn't mistake herself into thinking that if Jesus had only an AR-15, he wouldn't have been crucified. The entire gospel is lost in that. Praise God that he doesn't require us to entrust ourselves to him in our own strength. Instead, he invites us, he invites you and he invites me to consider the cross where Jesus died for do-it-yourselfers like me. After Jesus entrusted himself to God on the cross for our sin, God who judges justly raised him from the dead. Death did not have the last word. 
And for Daniel and his friends, even if it were death in this situation, death wouldn't have the last word, nor does it for you and me. And after Jesus was raised from the dead, Jesus gifted to us the same Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead to empower us to do what he did on the cross, to entrust ourselves to our Father and cry out for mercy. What a deliverer. Point number three in closing. When Daniel's prayer of desperation is answered by the God of heaven, you can almost hear him moved to his bones. You ever prayer journal? You ever write down prayer requests? Specific things like, oh man, on June 15th, we're gonna really need this to, and, and then you have it in a journal and then later on you're flipping through and you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I totally, for, I failed to see. God answered that prayer. It's kind of what he's having, what's happening right here all in a moment. When Daniel's prayer of desperation is answered, he is moved to the core of his soul and he proclaims the praises of God in arguably one of the most theologically rich doxologies of scripture, verses 20 through 23. He magnifies God's eternality and wisdom and power he exalts God as the sovereign controller of nature and nations. He celebrates God's generosity, that God is pleased to give gifts of wisdom and knowledge and understanding to those who take a moment to earnestly ask. He honors God, Daniel does, for revelation and knowledge and for holiness, verse 22. And he esteems God not only for God's never failing faithfulness to his people, the Israelites, but also for his faithfulness to Daniel and his friends in this moment of danger and darkness. Interestingly, at the beginning of our passage in verse four, when it says that Arioch was addressing the king in Aramaic, starting from that verse and traveling all the way through chapter seven, the Hebrew book of Daniel transitions from Hebrew into Aramaic. This is unique among biblical books. And there are several proposed reasons for this switch, but here's one that I think is particularly fitting for our message today. The man-made earthly gods of Babylon couldn't be bothered and had no strength to actually help in human affairs and Babylon's language was Aramaic. And we have Daniel here who is absolutely encountering the goodness of the real and living God of heaven. And missionally speaking, he wants all of the Babylonians to understand with absolute clarity, there is but one God in heaven. Read it in your own language. The God of heaven holds Babylon in his hand and he loves to show himself in human affairs. And so it is with you and me in what is starting to look in many ways like 21st century Babylon here in America. Will we respond? 
when threats are perceived and danger is on the horizon, will we do similarly to Daniel and his friends? I really do hope that some weeknight I'm invited to your house to get down on our knees and to cry out for the mercy of God to do something that we have no power to do. Let's pray. Father, I'm actually going to read from the beginning of this doxological prayer of Daniel. Father, blessed be your name forever and ever. To you belong wisdom and might. You change the times and the seasons. You remove kings and you set up kings. You give wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have just an inkling of understanding to cry out to you for more. You reveal deep and hidden things. You know what's in the dark and the light dwells with you. Oh, Father, by your great Holy Spirit and in the name of your great Son, Jesus, we ask that you would empower us to do what we see our Savior Jesus do, to do even better than what Daniel and his friends do in this passage, to completely entrust himself to you, for you are a just judge. You are wise and powerful, provident and strong to do as you see fit. Let us trust you and call out to you that your mercy would be known, not just to us, but to everyone around us. For your glory and our joy, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.